3617 response report of shots fired. The Coroner Talk podcast takes you behind the scenes with coroners, clinicians, and death investigators from around the world to provide training, news, and interviews from leading experts in the area of death investigation and scene management, bringing real stories and solid training together in one source. Now, here's your host, Darren Dake. Well, hello and welcome to this week's episode of Coroner Talk. Man, I am so glad you joined me this week. Uh, September is in full swing. Fall has started to be in the air. Still a little bit warm here in the Midwest, but fall is definitely falling. And I'm so glad you joined me again this week. We are going to go to part two of last week. We started on analyzing written statements, understanding statements written by uh, suspects and witnesses and things. And this week we're going to finish that. So that'll be a, this will be a part two. I don't have a lot of announcements other than say, if you're listening to this live when it comes out, you've only got a few days left to register for the September edition of the Medical Legal Death Investigator Online Academy. So you'll want to go over to the cornertalk.com, click on the Academy page there and get registered for that. Of course, next month is our three-day MLDI live classroom training here in Missouri. Uh, That's going to be a great time as well. We have a great time on, on these. And so uh, we have a lot of questions come in. We've answered those. Um, you might want to check out the Death Investigator magazine. We have a Q&A question on there, section on there. People will send in questions. One of our experts answers it. Kind of a neat uh, little thing there. So anyway, don't have a lot of announcements today. Don't have a lot of things to share with you. You know where our training is. You know how to get to our training. Anything we can do to help you, please let us know. Myself, the team that I work with, is here for one purpose and that is to help you become a better death investigator and live a better life-work balance. And that's what our main goal is. So without any further delay, I'm going to jump right into part two today of the handwritten statements with Dr. Dusher. Again, last week we uh, had part one. So if you haven't listened to part one, go back and listen to that and uh, you'll catch up. So without any further delay, let's get into that episode and I will see you on the other side. Adjust your earbuds, turn up those speakers, and hang on. It's now time for this week's featured conversation. You know, just like any builder that's going to build a house, they're not going to just have one tool in their toolbox. So I'm not saying handwritten statements, this is the way to go, this is the way to solve all crimes. No, you continue to do what you're doing and you continue to use all of your tools because, you know, our chain is only going to be as strong as our weakest link. And the more links we have and the stronger, the better. Handwriting also, um, identification, possibly possible cues and leads. When you lend support to other aspects of the investigation, then they may go in a different direction and then turn around and come back and have more questions for you to gather more written statements, which is fine. But once again, we're still not going to compare, ever compare with others in previous investigations or their ongoing investigation. All right, so let's kind of summarize on this one. Um, The writer's written text is dependent on their interpretation of information for a time and place. Keep that in mind. It's very dependent on the time and place. You may hear me say contextual. Uh, Also, their surroundings. And prior in-depth questioning will affect handwritten statements. So if possible, you're going to want to take these statements before the person has been questioned or interviewed. And also remember, of course, 
memories are going to influence. So the sooner that you can take a statement after an incident, the better, and the less information that you can ask them or give to them or basically give them brain fog by, you know, overflow of information to better. Something that I don't see often um, is taking witness statements at the crime scenes. I personally am an advocate for this. Um, I have done this before just as a criminalist. Didn't realize that I was actually talking to one of the victims, but she was unable to really talk to anybody. She was so upset, but I handed her a notebook and said, hey, I know, you know, this isn't a good time right now, but if you've just got anything you want to write down and some thoughts, go ahead. Long story short, it was fantastic. I actually took that and we were able to find information at that scene. Okay, next slide. Psychodiagnostic brain writing. Deception does not always cause cognitive load. Okay, cognitive load is brain stress. For example, psychopaths, sociopaths, serial killers, repeat offenders, they all share similar qualities. They what? They learn from their mistakes. They do not get nervous and wired before they go and commit a crime. Um, it's second nature. They know what they need to do. They stick to the script, and in psychology, we would say they stick to the schema. They have a plan. They know how this works, this process. They learn right off the bat. If it works, they repeat it. If it doesn't work, obviously, they either got caught or they don't repeat it. Uh, I found a quote from Ted Bundy. Sums it up perfectly. It's like changing a tire. The first time, you're careful. By the 30th time... You can't remember where you left the lug wrench. And wow, this is so Ted Bundy, because if you remember, you know, I would think it was probably about victim 35 to 39 or somewhere that he got lazy uh, and sloppy and he actually got caught. But Ted, pretty much from what we do know, he had the same mode every single time. He would always play poor, helpless me, get a young girl to come and help him and then plan his attack. But he stuck to his script. He knew what worked and he did it every time. So the first time offenders obviously commit a crime or the first time a witness might see a crime, not to say that you've got witnesses that see crimes all the time, they're going to be overloaded with information. There's going to be some stress whether they realize it or not, there's going to be some mental stress because this is not the norm. It doesn't happen every single day. Um, but in handwriting, you can start differentiating these stressful surroundings and you can differentiate by using baselines. And we're going to talk about that as well. Unfamiliar people, uh, if there's a lot of people around talking to them, asking questions, that's going to, that's going to cause stress. Questionable people, once again, you know, you take someone that's never been inside a police station or to a coroner's lab, um, they're kind of big-eyed, wide-eyed there for a while. I know I was the first time. Um, and you tell them to sit down and write a statement. No, you're going to get a lot of stress. You're going to get a lot of, as we like to say, clutter. Okay, so you're going to be writing, taking your baseline so that you can differentiate all of that. 
Forgetting info, keep in mind, is not a crime. So if someone is writing a statement or even if they're giving you a verbal statement, just because they can't remember something does not mean they're trying to be deceptive or, or deceitful. They just don't remember. And experiences different from the norm. So cognitive load. Some people, they don't experience cognitive load. They'll talk to anybody. They can start here, go there, whatever. Others, they get a little rattled. So you want to pr- try to provide them with an area that's as calm, low-key as possible. Give them some space. Let them sit down and write. You don't have to be standing over there, over them in the room. Just walk out, let them write. At the top left here where we talk about fabricated, rehearsed, and copy, these are your different um, <coughs> excuse me, types of lies. So mental conflicts resulting from fabricated lies, this can be captured in handwriting, and these are going to be easier to capture and to identify because there is so much mental conflict going on, and we're going to see more idiosyncrasies. Rehearsed handwriting, on the other hand, not so much because the person in rehearsing, they have created memories over and over. They know the plan, they know the drill, they know what to write. Copy information, believe it or not, you are gonna probably see more discrepancies in copy than you are in rehearsed because in copied information, you're gonna do what? You're gonna stop and pause and look back and forth and write, oh, make sure you wrote that, you spell that correctly. Uh, Or at least that's what I found in my research. Injury, disease, influence of alcohol. We talked about that. It's okay. (laughs) It's not okay. (laughs) I didn't mean to say that. Um, But if a person does have a prior injury or some type of disease that's affecting their handwriting and they can still write, then yes, you can still take a statement because you're going to see that their writing is going to be consistent with those idiosyncrasies. And believe it or not, you're still going to show the differentiation in the truthful and deceptive. Um, I did this in my research with a gentleman that had traumatic brain injury. Influence of alcohol or drugs. Honestly, I would not take a statement from someone if they were just totally loaded um, because they're probably not going to make much sense and who knows where the writing's going to go. And honestly, it would probably be thrown out in court. Okay. So also it's going to be easier. The harder a person tries to deceive you is also going to be easier for you to pick up on the deception. An example of this is a student when I was doing my research, uh, he came to me and told me, I am a great BSer. Okay. You're not going to be able to catch me in a lie. He said, not only am I a student, but I'm also a part-time dispatcher. And he said, I know how to remain calm, cool, and collected. I'm just telling you, this is not going to work. Well, guess what? His writing was probably the worst in that entire session um, because he was so confident and he was trying so hard. He was implementing the same things he normally would do when he was just talking to someone. Well, like we mentioned before, Handwriting is intrapersonal communication and not interpersonal communication. So what did he not have? He didn't have the interaction between somebody else. He didn't have that feedback element. Therefore, he didn't have anything to judge himself. But he was going on his confidence. And like I said, he ended up being the worst one. He was the easiest one. 
cues and spontaneous reactions. Spontaneous reactions in handwriting are also measurable and they're comparable to directed, rehearsed and copied handwriting. Unlike a fabricated lie, which typically you'll start seeing discrepancies right before the statement, in spontaneous reactions, kind of like what we talked about too with the copy, it may be scattered throughout in the middle here, there, wherever, okay? But you can tell these. How can you tell them? Because you're gonna have baseline writings to help compare to. Deceptive cues are hard to mask, but because they are a mix of the truth and deception. But remember, it's the mental conflict, it's that point, that's what we're looking for. Um, and like I said, they typically in fabricated lies occur at the beginning of a statement and then with your lies of omission, uh, denial, spontaneous reactions, copied writing, it's not uncommon to see them kind of scattered throughout. And keep in mind too, it's not uncommon to see them between like words A and the uh, short verbs. It's not the typical descriptive adjectives or adverbs, which a lot of people think when they're doing handwriting analysis that, you know, because that's where a person's really trying to make a point or make a difference. Deceptive writing is often more specific and pur purposeful. So, when you're looking at handwritings, like I said, don't, I'm not saying to compare them with others, but overall in general, when you see that you have a deceptive statement compared to someone who was just giving their statement and it was all truthful, you will see that people that are truthful, they tend to ramble a little bit more. And this and this happened. Oh, and by the way, and this happened because they want to make sure that they include every single detail because after all, you told them to include it that they just go overboard and they keep going. Whereas the person who obviously has something to hide, you tell them you need specifics, they are going to give you a bare minimum. Those specifics, that's it. That's enough in the discussion. Look over in the left-hand corner, bottom left-hand corner, thoughts and emotions. Brain writing, as I said, is a display of our mental, mental signals processed within time sequence, okay? So that's why, again, because it's within a time sequence, as you're processing in your brain, you're writing, and that's why you've got that lag time in between, right? So you are already processing something, but your hand hasn't caught up with that yet, and that's why you may see your discrepancy right before the actual deceptive word or words, and as we showed earlier, that's what we saw. A person's thoughts are immortalized on paper as a tangible view of their cognitive thoughts. This is something you might want to use in court. But your honor, a person's thoughts are immortalized on paper as a tangible view of their cognitive thoughts. Here's a piece of physical evidence. This is why another reason they're so valuable is investigative purposes. Now, I also compared individuals' repetitive deceptive writing. So what I had them do was on the same topic, they would watch a movie and then they would answer some questions. So the first time obviously was the best results because they had never seen it before or, 
not necessarily hadn't seen the clip before, but they had never seen the questions. They did not know what to expect. So yes, was there conflict? Was there processing? Was there a little anxiety? All of that was in play. The second time, exactly what I expected, less discrepancies. The third time, hardly any at all. You would think that they'd actually memorized a script and knew what they were going to do. Okay, this is no different than what we talked about earlier when you have repeat offenders or you have someone that has psychopathic or sociopathic tendencies. It's like the back of their hand. They have a script, they're going to follow it, and they're not going to stress over it. Bam, end of discussion, move on. Um, and like I said, you're going to see that. Now, some analyst investigators will say deceptive statements are easily distinguishable from truthful statements. I disagree because, and I, I guess I do disagree more so because now that I'm actually measuring and I've looked at these statements and I quote, don't read statements the first time through, um, things that I go back and I would think, oh, well, that didn't sound right. Or, you know, no, according to the measurements, that's not always the case. Um, they typically were telling the truth. It might just be they were pausing and thinking of what they were going to say. Okay, that's not deception. Or maybe they remembered it that way or their intent was to tell it a certain way. So not all communicators, keep in mind, are going to exhibit the same deceptive cues. Just like you and I are not going to exhibit the same you know, body language or micro expressions. So, nor do all cues mean the same. That's the point uh, a lot of investigators, I don't want to say screw up, but they tend to want to generalize. And some researchers have found that a certain cue, let's just use uh, body language. Once again, the easy one, crossing your arms. We've all, and I still use it as an example. You're closing yourself off to everyone. No, that could also mean that your elbow's hurting or your back's hurting. You're trying to stretch your back. Keep that in mind when you're looking at these cues after you've probably read 100 written statements and processed them. Keep in mind, don't get in that rut. It's just like when you go to the crime scene. Everyone is new. Every, every written statement is a new crime scene. Look at it as such. Cognitive load occurs um, when you're processing these thoughts and you have, like I said, conflicting thoughts, experiencing the new information, fabricating non-existent occurrences, and unsure of thoughts and decisions. And this will be something too you may be asking court, you know, well, what are examples of cognitive load? Processing conflicting thoughts, fabricating non-existent occurrences, and unsure of thoughts or decisions. So without baseline samples, your opinions are generalized cues. That's all they are. They're basically nothing. That's like telling someone, uh, run this DNA sample, but do not run a control sample with it. Forget it. All you have is just, yeah, you've got a sample. You've got some results, and they really mean nothing. Okay? So your sample has to have a baseline with it. So methods for obtaining our written statements. Proper collection of your written statements are no less important than collecting other potential evidence. If you want to use it, you intend to use it, and you hope that it can be a beneficial value, then obviously you're going to want to collect it the 
correct way. You're going to want to make sure you have your baseline or quote your control sample, and it's not going to be thrown out in court. So example, you know, would you go to a crime scene? There's a body there, a deceased body. The person has some hair holding in their hand. There's some hair in their hand. Would you just collect that hair from their hand and be done with it? Or would you collect hair from their hand as well as other parts of their body? Hopefully you answered you would also collect from other parts of their body. Why? Because you want to be able to do what? Rule out right off the bat, was that their hair or was that someone else's hair? Same way with the written statements. That's why we're going to want to use baselines because we want to rule out, was this just anxiety because they were the beginning of their statement, just kind of getting used to, getting the groove of writing? Uh, were they being deceptive? Or, wow, they were flipping thoughts and ideas here and spontaneous, everything was going on. Were they just really messed up and were like just overloaded? Okay, let's look some more. All of this, we're going to be able to compare and make these subjective analysis based on our objective measurements. Specificity is paramount for collecting purposes and requesting writing samples. As I mentioned before, don't give them a lot of information, but you need to be specific in what time frame, especially, or topic that you want them to talk about. Open-ended questions um, without request for the specific details. These can well, basically, you'll end up, end up chasing all kinds of rabbits down all kinds of holes if you do this. Why? Because if you just leave an open-ended question, that's a free-for-all for them. And the easiest way to respond to these open-ended questions are by lies of omission, denial. You just don't talk about it. If you don't talk about it and don't write it, you're not going to get caught being deceptive, Right. So, like I said, you've got to be a little bit specific. Don't just leave it open for them. Um, no conflicting messages in lies of mission or denial. No, but so how do we still pick up on lies of omission or denial? Because there's going to still be that mental conflict that's going to go on, and you're going to have that little blip in the writing that's going to say, hey, writing idiosyncrasy, look out. Something is not right here. You can read it and it may sound per perfectly fine. It may make sense. Nothing will be out of order, but look out. So if the writer is truthful and has nothing to hide, cognitive load will not be an issue. Not always the case. Like I mentioned before, you may have the person who's like, I do not want them to think that I'm possibly telling any sort of lie. I'm being deceptive in any way, shape, or form. I've got to include everything. That's the person that gets out of order chronologically. That's the person who sometimes their statements just don't, do not make logic, logical sense. They're a mess. But they're honest, okay? Their answers will be second nature. And you'll have, you know, you'll, they'll be second nature to them but yet you still may have, like I said, that cognitive load, but you're going to be able to distinguish that with your what? Your baseline writing samples. On the other hand, you have your repeat offender or your psychopath, sociopath. We know theirs is like second nature, but what's going to be the difference between the two? Theirs is going to be more specific, concise writing to the point, not a lot of detail. Now, what's something that they're going to stay away from? Spatial and temporal details. 
they're not going to show a lot of relationships. Why? Because if they didn't happen, they're not going to be in their brain. They're not going to be in their memory bank. It's not in the script. They're going to leave it out. It's going to be non-existent. Keep that in thought because we're going to come back to that. Three types of lies. Denial, omission, fabrication. Yes, there are more than three types of lies, but through my research, these are the ones that I have found uh, that appear most often in handwritten statements. And like I said, denial and omission are the hardest to detect versus fabrication is fairly easy. Ask the unexpected questions, which would include what? The spatial and temporal details. Why? Because you're going to have to show a relationship. And when you have to show a relationship, that means that you're going to have to have a lot of information, some backup information. You're going to have to have been there, done that, know that, right? So here's a simple example of a spatial relationship. Okay, you said you were in such and such room. And you said you were sitting on the couch and that you placed, you know, you had a drink in your hand. And then you said you did you got up and you helped somebody cross the room. What did you do with your drink? Oh, I set it down. Oh, where did you where did you set it down? Well, on the table. Well, which table did you set it down on? Uh, okay, they're not necessarily, I mean, when you're talking to them, they may not necessarily go, ah, uh, or whatever. But if you ask these questions as follow-up questions in a written statement, you're going to see that awe in the writing as well because there's going to be that pause. There's going to be that, oops, okay, I'm making all this up. And chances are they've probably already been to the crime scene and they know if there was tables and they know where they are, okay? Temporal details, time. Yes, I went through McDonald's with so-and-so at 11.55 and we got to this house at, you know, 12.04 and blah, blah, blah. We stayed there a few minutes. We left at 12.34 and they, you've seen statements like this. They go on and on and they just love putting their exact times or whatever. Go through those statements and pick out because you'll see that some of the times there's going to be like gaps and they're really not going to describe anything. Uh, it's going to be a gap of like four hours sometimes. They're not going to have an alibi for that. They're not going to talk about that. They're not going to say, well, for these four hours, I'm not going to tell you what I did, did or did not do. They're just going to kind of ignore it and skip over it. Take note of those as well. Now, let's go back to the slide again. Okay, so like in interviews, like I said, your follow-up questions, uh, requests for more written statements, do that. That's not uncommon. That's how sometimes you get back into the nitty gritty. And that's when you can ask your spatial and your temporal questions. The more a person writes, the better picture you're going to get of their mental process. So keep them writing. Plus, you want them to get comfortable. You want them to basically be to the point where like, oh, okay, whatever, ask me another question. Okay, even the person that's trying to be deceptive, they're going to get aggravated and irritated and they're going to get really tired of writing and they're going to do what Ted did, Ted Bundy, right? They're going to get sloppy. Keep that in mind. And it's okay. Like I said, I, I mentioned earlier, it does, grammar and spelling, that doesn't matter. Uh, writing in cursive or print, that doesn't matter. And it's also okay for you 
to tell that to the person writing the statement. You can let them know. This is irrelevant to this. So write and do whatever you want and how you want to do it. Just make sure that I can read it. Baselines. Written statements are subject specific. Remember, keep them on topic and make sure that you're asking your spatial time, okay, questions. You want to make sure that you've got to ring them in real uh, and make that they will answer those specific questions, whether it's going to cause cognitive load or not cognitive load. That's what you're looking for. Directed, not copy baselines. What I mean by that is give them a question that's multi-tiered and say, and it can be, some, it obviously has to be something that you can verify. Okay. So just tell me a little bit about yourself. This is what I'm going to ask you. I just need to know your name, uh, where you live, where you work, when you started working there, um, how many children do you have, what's your dog's name? I, I mean, just whatever. I'm just throwing things out there right now. But you're going to want to ask them multiple questions. Do not ask them anything to do with the investigation. Make sure it's strictly just about them and obviously that it's something that you can verify and it's going to be easy to verify. Um, you can ask them, you know, what state is your driver's license in or what, anything like that. What type of car do you drive? There, like I said, these, your baselines are going to be your control samples. So demonstrating these response, um, when they respond to this, you're going to see, it's going to be natural to see minimum cognitive load. You're going to see a little bit, especially at the beginning when they start writing the, uh, writing the statement, you're going to see that, but you're going to see it weighing off very quickly and um, because they know themselves, they know this information you're asking them. So there's not going to be any uh, doubt whatsoever, unless there's something. A lot of times when I see it and baselines, it'll be, they try to spell something. And they, even though you've told them it's okay if it's misspelled, they'll pause for a minute and they'll have trouble with that. And that'll be a red flag, but you can ignore that. Um, the latter... Now, the other thing, too, is baselines, you always want to collect two baselines, one at the beginning and one at the end of the statement. And you want it to be the same questions that you asked the first time. So if you're afraid you might forget the questions, go ahead, write them down, ask them the questions, have them write their baseline, take the sample away from them, then give them another piece of paper to write the statement. When they're done with that, a third piece of paper, okay, please answer these questions again. What you should see is the idiosyncrasies that you saw at the beginning of the baseline, the first baseline, you probably will not see on the second baseline writing. Um, you may see some other discrepancies, but you can compare the writing and you'll see too, it may just be writer's fatigue that they're just tired of writing, especially if they gave like a really long statement. Okay. Um, brain writing, don't forget is based on our subconscious and our conscious mind working in sync. It's when it gets out of sync that we start having the mental conflict. When we have the mental conflict, what do we have? We have the writing discrepancies or idiosyncrasies, and then that's when we get caught or they get caught. Successful liars. I mentioned before that our psychopaths and our sociopaths that they have calculated um, schema or scripts, they stick to them, they're confident, they learn from their mistakes, they can redirect 
conversations. They can deflect. People also do this in writing as well. So be aware of that. Notorious. Oh, yeah. Notorious for recalculating actions based on feedback. So don't, if you decide to sit in the room with someone writing, don't be surprised if they'll say, uh, we'll start asking, uh, well, do you want me to do this? Or how do you want this written? Okay, basically what they're doing is they are trying to deflect, get off the topic, not answer the question, and then you come back later and say, you didn't answer this question. They're going to look at you and say, oh, I'm sorry, I got off topic. I was asking you that question. I'll go back and write it now. Well, of course they will, because they've had time to stop and think, how am I going to stage this answer? What am I going to say? He'll give me a chance to write it because he wants to know my answer. And then they'll go back and then they're going to have a very scripted answer. So just be aware of that. Disca uh, excuse me, I can't talk. Deceptive cues prior to completed statement. Truth and deception combine. Points of mental conflict. Remember, it's going to be harder to detect in verbal statements than in written statements because they're going to be happening so fast. So this is another reason we like written statements is because they're what? They're a time-stamped picture of that evidence right there. We can go back and forth and look at it as many times as we want. Let's just summarize a little bit. And then if you guys have any questions too, obviously there's my email at the bottom or you can contact Darren and we can go from there and make sure that you get your questions answered. So statement analysis seeks to identify investigation leads and the writer's subconscious thoughts and their veracity. Because remember, the subconscious thoughts is what we're looking out for because those are the ones that typically we try to keep in the back and we hide. We don't want anyone to know those. All statements, ideally, would be 100% accurate, totally truthful, not likely. Why? Because, keep in mind, deception also includes doubt. So a person may not be trying to be totally deceptive and lie to you, but they may have some doubt as whether or not they have their facts straight, and that may come across as deceptive. Deception, and so sometimes we call these white lies, or I just call them doubt, um, points of uncertainty. Keep in mind, so like I said, this is a subjective science. Investigators determine significance of writing idiosyncrasies important. So you're going to determine whether or not it's important to your investigation. When you see a discrepancy, don't discount it if it doesn't follow along with what you have investigated so far, because you might be surprised. Just hold on to it, ask some more questions, and then it may come into play later. It may not make sense right off the bat. It may not make sense why a person was lying about some very insignificant details. Uh, that's what kind of clued me into the mom's statement that she was writing about her son. Collect statements prior to questioning. Remember, that goes back to the memory influence. You do not want them to have those memories, which then, then you know, you replay something over in your mind enough, it becomes real. You can make it become real. And when you believe it's real and you write it, it's going to look real to an investigator that's doing a statement analysis. Specify the importance of the details. Make sure they understand the time frame that you need the specifics, the subject topic, um, and then later on, like I said, you can follow up with spatial and temporal details. Do not, please do not allow, allow statements to be written outside of your control. Do not allow someone to take a statement home somewhere and write it because you're not going to know 
who wrote the statement. However, I do suggest possible witnesses uh, writing statements at scenes because not everybody wants to come down to a station or somewhere. Um, you might get some good information there. Just kind of keep an eye on them. And then keep in mind, emotions and details are not always expressed truthfully. Um, so people can be trying to hide their emotions or for whatever reason, and they may not have anything to do with the question at hand, the actual incident that occurred, but you're also going to see that too. And yes, you're going to have to figure out why the, there's discrepancies in their writing but with baseline writing. And then obviously comparing, you know, other statements and putting all your investigative tools together. You can figure that out. Determining baseline is best uh, for indicating these writer, writers idiosyncrasies. Plus, if you go to court with this, this is your control sample. Uh, the more, the better. Like I said, if you have one at the beginning and the end, you can show changes in writing because if there's an excuse that someone's going to try to pull, it's going to be, I just got tired of writing. And that's why it looks like I'm lying at the end of my statement. Well, that's funny because your control sample at the end of the statement is perfectly fine. There you go. Now, keep in mind, anyone ask you, so plain and simple, handwriting is basically just an indirect view of mental processes. It's an indirect view because obviously we're not, you cannot see inside my brain and you probably wouldn't want to right now. Um, but it's an indirect view because you're looking at my handwriting, which is what? It's a tangible snapshot of those mental processes. Um, memorized or processed emotional details exhibit less cognitive load. Don't forget, if they believe it's true or they've had time to process it and rehearse it over and over, it becomes true. If it becomes true, it's going to appear true on the paper. And writing styles change with circumstances. The more formal the writing is typically, if you're going to see more formal writing, it's going to be at the beginning of the statement versus at the end of the statement because they've gotten more relaxed, just like, you know, I'm probably more formal at the beginning of a class than I am at the end of the class. You get into the groove, you get used to writing. So keep in mind, that's also where you're probably going to see more of the discrepancies as well. Words of uncertainty. Here again, this is why I don't like to read my statements first. I like to analyze them, then read them. Words of uncertainty, most of the time, or most of the about 1,200 statements that I've read over the past few years, are truly just that. They're words of uncertainty. Do not try to read something into it. It's strictly the person usually saying, I don't know, or I guess that's what happened, or I'm not sure, or I think. Take it for what it is. It's a piece of evidence and don't try to recreate or interpret it. And I think I'm getting near the end here. Yes, chronological and logical um, statements. Obviously, we would love for them to be chronological and we'd love for all of them to be logical. That's not necessarily going to happen, but you can still get some really good evidence because as a person's processing, all you're concerned about is what they put down on paper and the veracity. Is it truthful or is it deceptive? We don't really care the order that it comes in. We don't all process crime scenes the same way or in the same order every time. And keep in mind, traumatized people, obviously they're going to react differently and their statements are going to reflect such. But 
still, you're going to be able to tell the difference between just anxiety and deceptive statements. All right, I'm right back here with you live. So we're going to stop there. Uh, this is, a uh, again, part two. Yes, last week was part one. This is part two. It's a, a part of an online training series that we're creating, uh, you know, for investigators. Along with our medical legal death investigation training, we're also creating some other investigative type training. So this is just a snippet into that. And I thought it would be nice for uh, you, our loyal listeners, to get a, a sneak peek into what that training is going to be like and quite honestly to train you and train myself also in some ways of looking at some statements i know some of it was visual like i said last week but i i i got a lot out of it and i think you of course will too so anyway i want to just thank you again for joining in this week if you have any questions for me or for anybody on our team please go to the contact page and send us a contact email from there or just send us to uh, directly. Uh, we'll answer any questions you have. If there's some specific training or a specific podcast episode or show you would like for us to cover, please let us know that. We've got some that have been sent in that we have already covered. Some I've got in the queue to cover at a later time. So we are working on that. So please don't be afraid to send in a topic that you want to hear from. If you have a specific person you want us to try to get on the show, let us know that and I will try to get them on as well. So again, thank you. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in again this week. Uh, Again, as I always say, and I really, really, really mean it. I want you to be a blessing to someone because when you're a blessing to someone in someone's life, then you will be blessed 10 times over till next week. Everybody be safe. Thanks for listening to Coroner Talk, a DSPN media production. Visit our website at coronertalk.com. And be sure to like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash coroner training. 3617-1024 scene on route to morgue.